Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Hello and welcome to In the Know. I'm your host, Amal Sarva, co-founder of Notel, and today I have the great privilege, it's like a triple privilege, I think, Jonathan, to have Jonathan Libman, who well, wrote a book I'm about all, me. Thank, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to, to chat today. Yeah, I'm psyched. I'm really psyched. I mean, I'm, I'm, we will talk about the, the entire book you dedicated to my life and story. Uh, <laughs> and of course, I bumped back into you quite separately when I was getting deeper on all the IDEO stuff since you've written yeah. a couple of books with Tom Kelly exactly. on innovation and that sort of human-centered process and, um, and even more. I mean, this new book that I hope is coming out soon uh, sounds yeah. fascinating. Thank you. So yes. it is my privilege. Yeah, thank you. And the, the show you're on right now, this episode, is an installment in a journey of learning about how to make big things. And mm-hmm. the conceit of it a little bit is um, on a lark, I decided to start recording and sharing some of the extraordinary conversations I get to have as I travel the world building Notel, which is like it's like the 100th company that I've been involved in, maybe the 10th that I've started. And um, wow. it's big. It's like it's a lot bigger already than anything else that I ever ran. And I think its potential is insane. And we've been sort of spider webbing all around the Americas and Europe and Asia now. And I go to these cities, I meet these leaders of companies, these like these thinkers, and the world needs to know. The world needs yeah. to know and, and have access to, to some of these ideas, and some of them are yours. And really, it's been a through line for quite a number of years that I've been, been working in entrepreneurship and, and trying to get a, a bit smarter about what I do. And at a certain right. point, a few years back, I even started teaching entrepreneurship at um, Columbia here in New York. And it got me in like a way more academic mindset about what is at the heart of this process? What have we learned 40 years into this kind of, or maybe almost 50 years into uh, the revolution of Silicon Valley and the culture and those ideas and what have some of the waves been. And so I had to talk to you. Well, this is, it's very cool because we're kind of on uh, parallel universes and give a little preamble is, you know, I haven't traveled quite as crazily as you, but I, I'm a native San Franciscan and in the last two years, I, I spent a fair amount of time in first, just before in Asia, but then about 13 different countries in Europe. Part of my inspiration was, you know, I was born here. I'm a little older, so I've seen the waves come and go of tech. And um, I wanted to see what was happening in Paris, in Lisbon, in Estonia, which is super cool, you know, tiny, amazingly digital country in Warsaw. And so I went on this adventure uh, with my business partner, uh, Susanna Camp. Out of it came this new book. And the new book is going to be called The Entrepreneur's Faces. It's a human-centered design, really, approach to entrepreneurship. What we found is we went to all these different, you know, wild cities and countries, and we started to see archetypes of entrepreneurs. We decided we wanted to write, you know, an authentic book and not just celebrate sort of the Steve Jobses of the world but to find, you know, real cool entrepreneurs in different places that people could aspire to be and try to understand their types. So that's one of the things I've been doing. I mean, the broad arc of your work that takes you to this point is as a journalist and writer, um, I guess, was it ZDNet? Uh, Yeah, I was, uh, you know, plucked out of UC Berkeley. I actually 
I or rather, ZDNet is my silly way of saying it. Ziff Davis, of course, is the lasting institution behind that. Yeah, yes, yeah. But I, uh, I was a high school journalist. I studied rhetoric, which I'm forever indebted to Berkeley, because there were only two places in the country. And rhetoric is a very intentional degree in speaking and writing, in persuasion and intention, uh, you know, in studying Aristotle and Cicero and it was really a great foundation. And then I happened to be at this earlier era where I was, I did some coding, technical writing, and I worked for some of the early tech magazines. And as you mentioned, like, you know, back in the day, PC Week was giant. Uh, when PC oh, I had a subscription. Of... I would uh, <laughs> wait by the mailbox for that thing to arrive, the latest 386 right. computer from. Uh, uh... <laughs> yeah, so I'm, you know, and I'm my father was from England, his father was from Lithuania, but I'm a native San Franciscan. And so I was down in the valley early and, you know, was that... Your name, like, means Lithuanian, right? Lit, Litvax, <laughs> Litman. Probably. Probably. It's probably true. But I was down at Stanford when they were getting the first personal computers to sort of change how all these disciplines, you know, and, and I, I was going into the humanities and other departments and talking to professors who had suddenly had this new tool. So, you know, like you, I've been sort of lucky to see this evolution of computers. And of course, now we have a supercomputer in our hand compared to the old days. And so I got that start early on. And then I had a kind of a, a weird life where I had an idea for a book. I did what I would call my first startup, which was quit my great job at PC Week and take a plunge and write a book, which I'm proud to say now I have done 10 books. I have 10, you know, uh, book startups. Wow. <laughs> pretty much everyone is a startup. I have uh, at least three of them. Can't well, believe that's, it. That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> uh, you know, I had a weird twist where I wrote two uh, popular books about the most notorious computer hackers in the day Kevin Mitnick, Kevin Polson, who were, you know, brilliant social engineers and did some extraordinary things. And I sort of was in that, that underbelly, that subculture, and was getting calls from criminals, you know, usually at three or four in the morning. <laughs> Really? Because uh, you were just so deep with all the hacking dark web kind well, of universe? Well, uh, hackers are uh, pretty much usually narcissists in a, in a technical way. And when they find out you're getting stories published in the LA Times Magazine and getting movie deals, they all want to talk to you. So, um, so yes, I talked to so many hackers over four years that I was kind of done with hackers. <laughs> And then I so that was the like term. the Fugitive Game and the Watchmen. Yeah, uh, in, yeah. In the heyday of hackers, actually. I mean, these days, hackers lack the same kind of mystery and celebrity. I mean, maybe uh, Mr. Assange is on the level of like a Kevin Mitnick in the 90s. I mean, oh, yeah. I, FBI, Blue I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put him in the same league, but that's okay. <laughs> Mitnick was, yeah, I talked but, to but Mitnick. Yeah, I talked to Mitnick, uh, I, I, I hate to say it, but probably, you know, 150 times. Most of the time when he was in jail, so these were $3 a minute calls from a correctional facility, but he was very clever, and if I were a bank, I'd still be worried about, you know, today's Kevin Mitnick. So I learned a tremendous amount from these guys, and then I had this serendipity that 
Tom Kelly at IDEO loved my um, hacker books, loved my Mitnick book, and I collaborated for six years on two books with Tom um, and sort of switched hats and left my criminal hacking path and joined, you know, the one of the most innovative companies in the world to write these two books. So did you um, join IDEO and sit in the office and just follow this guy around? Yeah, I was never an or... official employee, but I did co-author these two books that were sort of transformational for IDEO. They've actually sold three quarters of a million copies together worldwide. I mean, they're um, huge books. I teach them in my class. I mean, I, one of the thank two, you. I, I do the art of innovation. Thank yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it changed me, and um, this sort of will lead eventually toward my new book. It changed me because the first time I saw this concept of an individual's archetype, and in our second book, which is the Ten Faces, we had this concept really about you know developing creative, innovative products. And it, Tom and I actually jointly came up with the idea after a month of staring at a blank whiteboard. We just started writing down the most talented people on the board, IDEO, and then we went, ah, let's see. Dennis is the experimenter. Jane is the anthropologist. So that's how we actually came to that book, which was The Ten Faces of Innovation. And it was really about if you want to create innovative products, there are sort of different approaches to how you see the world. One way, a cross-pollinator another way, a set designer another way. And actually, of my two books, this is with IDEO, this is my favorite because I've taught it in workshops, you know, now for, you know, over a decade. It just uh, awakens people because they discover, you know, something that is their passion that it maybe been a bit buried and they, you know, they go, wow, I'm an anthropologist. I'm Amazing. a set designer. This is a theme that I have been investigating maybe the last five, six episodes of In the Know with decision theorists and psychologists and business professors. I had, you know, Tetlock talking about the best super forecasters and a philosopher talking about hedgehogs and foxes and the ways of getting at an understanding of people's mental habits. And this is clearly what, what you did too. Right. And I do sort of experiential workshops in this where you actually go into a physical environment like if you were here in san francisco we would do like a six-hour lab where the group would actually go to the wonderful ferry building you've probably been to right down by the water and we would sort of do customer journey maps of these companies but they would be sort of looking to sort of stretch their legs in these different approaches so they, they'd be thinking in the, you know, the mindset of a cross-pollinator, of a set designer, anthropologist, experimenter. It happens to be a great place to do it because there's some very creative companies that, you know, Blue Bottle was just bought by, you know, Nestle for half a billion, I think. And Cowgirl, you may know, Cowgirl Creamery was bought by the largest Swiss cheese company, dairy company. So it's kind of, I like to take people to a physical laboratory. And then, then we come back and they try to stretch more into these roles and, you know, create some new ideas. So I did that for a long time and I still do that. But then this new idea came about. Let's turn to it soon. I yeah. want to investigate a little bit more of these 10 sure. faces and, and some of the ideas behind 
the contributions that you and Tom and IDEO and colleagues there have made to the world. On these 10 faces, there's a couple different ways you can get to archetypes, I think. And sometimes when people lay out these archetypes, they're doing a kind of narrative storytelling thing. And it's folks who come from the world of, you know, history and literature. And Mm -hmm. then they start seeing certain character identities gel together into bundles of behaviors and features and patterns. They're able to sketch out a richer persona. And often, you know, actually in marketing and in product development, this is a classic strategy as well. Like, who is our user? It's the Disney mom. It's the whatever. That's sort of one way. And then there is another way, which is kind of neat, too which is a little bit more based on cognitive science and the sort of physical and behavioral patterns and norms that can be mm-hmm. tested, observed, and generalized among people. So mm-hmm. a good one is the fox and the hedgehog, which straddles both of these. There's this um, philosopher, Isaiah Berlin, who wrote a paper maybe six, 70 years ago about Tolstoy, and he opens it by giving this really tight, like just little two-page introduction to an idea that he'd been kicking around. He's like, you know, mm-hmm. some people are foxes, some people are hedgehogs. There's some line from Archilochus, this Greek poet, and he's like, uh, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. And it's meant to divide <laughs> the world, to show that there are different styles. Maybe it's not normative. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the fox wins, sometimes the hedgehog right. wins. And he's like, you know, an author like Tolstoy is a fox. Tolstoy can be in the ballroom when the young maiden is presented for the first time to the colonel and you catch the light glinting off her earring. And then two pages later, he's on a battlefield, and then he zoomed all the way out, and he's talking metaphysics, and he's inside Napoleon's head, and whatever. He's mm-hmm. just everywhere. He's in. It's like he is able to masterfully craft and land in so many different mm-hmm. types of situations. Now, by contrast, right. uh, just another Russian author, Dostoevsky, or let's say Melville, to pick an American one. Like these are these huge philosophically ornate, complex system-building authors and thinkers. They are hedgehogs. Mm-hmm. They write nine books, but they're actually all about the same thing. They're just about death and morality or something like that. Right. And you see these types. And one of the cool things that Philip Tetlock did with his super forecasting work with these like prediction guys is he tried to like measure and tease apart the super forecasters, try to predict if they were hedgehogs, predict if they were foxes, and then correlate that to how good mm-hmm. they were at doing different jobs. And so this whole structure I laid out for you, I wonder which was your center of gravity as you thought about these different personas and if there are ways yeah, to measure I mean, diagnostically. Yeah, so as to discuss, I'm, personally, I'm both the fox and the hedgehog because, uh, because my new book and this first book we're talking about now, which was The Ten Phases of Innovation, and then I have the new book right now, The Entrepreneur's Faces, that shows I must be a bit of a hedgehog. You're into faces, I, apparently. Yes. And the first one fits uh, one of the new archetypes in the new book, which one, I think one really great entrepreneurial type that we hit upon is what we call the accidental, which I'll talk about more in a bit. But this was not an IDEO method that Tom and I came up with. It was a Tom and John uh, serendipity just because we were immersed in talking to, you know, David Kelly and, you know, a hundred other people at IDEO. And we simply was more like an Aristotelian, like, okay, let's just start classifying who are the people who are here. And we found some of the core, you know, kinds of people that were at IDEO that were very important, you know, in building innovative products. You know, to be honest and frank, it was you know, just starting from like, let's try to understand this company. And then we realized that perhaps the thing that was a little innovative about it was that there was this human side to it, which, uh, you know, having been around IDEO and being an author, 
I believe is sort of the next wave for entrepreneurial, innovative, creative people is that, you know, people have a lot more potential than often they realize if you find, you know, these passion points and if you find what inspires them and who they work best with and on what kinds of, pro- you know, projects. And I think we kind of hit the first phase of that with this book, which is the 10 Faces of Innovation. And I'm pleasantly surprised that this book being, as I say, a becoming a senior member of this new world here, I'm really excited when I meet someone who's 24, who's reading, you know, my 10 Faces of Innovation for the first time and, you know, finding it valuable to his, you know, startup in South America here in San Francisco or in uh, Portugal, in Lisbon. So, yeah, it must be so like enormously satisfying. Yeah, well, let's talk yeah, about your entrepreneur faces for a second. And yeah. I want to be able to contrast them from to your earlier work too, right? Like the in the 10 faces, you've got these like three bundles of type. And, you know, you've got like the building one, you've got the learning one, and um, I guess you've got like the editor or the organizing one. And I sure. recognize those as, as three big like personality vectors, right? Like the building one, bias to action, right. let's get in there, put my hands on it, it's the details, it's the specifics, like let's see if it works, I don't need your theory, let's start with the practice, whatever. You get your building one, and I guess it expresses itself in a couple, in a handful of different ways. There's this organizing one who can be a bit annoying because they want to edit you. They want to sure. sort of get it done and, and decide and, and sort of change it or modify it or, you know, they're rather pragmatic. And then, of course, there's this really open learning family of types, right, where mm-hmm. they're, they're curious, they're sort of fiddling, they're just like loosely joining stuff together they're going is, deep. That's my favorite, of course, and maybe both of ours. Who knows? I do love the learning one, and that's pretty foxy. I think I'm a pretty strong fox in my fox-hedgehog dichotomy. But <laughs> there is a thing about the learning type that does irritate me when I'm an entrepreneur and I'm trying to get things done, which is you got to start. You do have to do Exactly. That. Decisions exactly. are needed and product must ship. That's the doing part. Well, so just to stay with that, and then we'll shift to the entrepreneur's faces. You know, uh, for me, the the big important learning for myself was that I was just one of these types originally. I was the storyteller, which was one of our 10 types. Um, Did you just squeeze that in there for yourself? I mean, is that just uh, self-validation? <laughs> and when I, when I started working with Tom and IDEO, I became another type, which is a collaborator. And I, I don't say that lightly because, you know, I've collaborated on many, many things since then, and I, I take great joy in it. And I'm constantly reminded, as I'm sure you are, that, you know, if you want to do a startup, in most cases, you need a co-founder or, you know, a collaborator. And it is, it's pivotal to this you know, shift in how products are created and people make great stuff. But I also discovered other faces, and I'm really a good cross-pollinator now. And it's a conscious decision that I made. So I'm an athlete, so I was a, you know, Division One elite uh, soccer player, and I, I'm still a pretty elite paddleboarder and cross-country skier. And I look at innovation and, you know, entrepreneurship as a sort of joyful, competitive exercise. So hmm. I actively think about I want to be a better cross-pollinator. I want to be a better anthropologist. And I actually have mental exercises and visual exercises that I do to wow. amplify these. 
Seriously. And oh, no, it, I mean, you got to help me out here. So, I, first of all, I mean, we should not pass over too quickly a foundational observation you've made here, which is that people are mobile across these personas. They are not like fixed natural types. You are, un, you know, you are, yeah. And in my new book, we sort of consciously reject the tyranny of the Enneagram, the tyranny of, you know, all these prescriptive, very overly, in my view, overly structured views of like who you are. Because I think the amazing thing about entrepreneurial people is that they actually haven't become who they are yet. <laughs> they're, they're, they're in motion. And actually, actually, one of the things when I see somebody and, and decide I want to mentor somebody or work with them, that's a core thing I look for. But the yeah, malleability, like the willingness yeah. to travel from one place to another. Yeah. Yeah, to, yeah. to travel and so forth. But I'm going to shift if it's okay to the entrepreneur's faces for a second. Because yeah, I yeah. was, yeah, I was so lucky to have this experience with Tom or with, you know, I do. And then I traveled like you, I, you know, I went to these, you know, 13 countries in Europe. I worked out of these different, you know, incubators, accelerators. I also, you just talked about something important, the, the act of doing. I've been uh, essentially a student. I've been allowed to attend Stanford Launchpad, this phenomenal accelerator created by um, Perry Clavin and Michael Deering at Stanford, um, which in nine years, just in like nine or 10 teams a year, so that's just, you know, under 100 teams of students, they've raised a half a billion in capital for these startups out of a college class. Amazing. A 10-week college class, and they're attending other classes, and they have boyfriends and girlfriends and, and so forth. And Carrie Clayman is a master at starting, which is what you just talked about, and doing and in prototyping everything. Like, so everyone talks about prototyping products, but they, they prototype everything. They prototype how to be a manager, you know, how to create your story, how to find, you know, investors. And it's not academic, by which I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> they do things really fast, and the pure academics, uh, you know, don't stay on the bus, right? They fall off fast. But I had this experience of this travel and this immersion with Perry and then with, with my partner, Susanna Camp, we came up with this idea that, wow, you know, IDEO is great and it's great that we have this sort of product innovation model, but isn't it a human endeavor? Like, and aren't you more inspired when you discover that you're the outsider or you're the athlete? or you're the accidental. And when we sort of hit upon this, we, you know, we realized we were seeing these types, you know, and another great type we have is the guardian. And we were seeing that these were just such a strong element to like these individuals that are not they're really their personality, but their essence, like their spirit. And so we saw this in people in Europe. We saw this in people here. Give me some types. Yes, I'll list off quickly the types. Uh, How many? We have the makers. The makers, you know, foundational. And uh, in, in our story, it's, it's Perry who created the Stanford Launchpad and now is a model for makers for, you know, a hundred different makers. We have. Maker is sort of hands on the stuff, passion for the stuff. Yeah, the, the maker uh, prototype. Program, attacker. Yeah, yeah. Make a, pro make a thing that solves your own problem because you love it. Yeah. I mean, he uses prototyping to learn and progress. 
everything can be modeled and tested. He knows what and when to prototype. I mean, famous models of this are, you know, people like Richard Branson and James Dyson of the good old vacuum. So that's a foundational one. But then you and have, you include um, Richard. You include Richard because uh, he loved music. Open a record store. He loved music. Open a record label. Uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, and there was no fear about doing different things and just making it happen fast. Um, right, and like not a commercial model from the outset in Richard's mind either. It's always just like, this is dumb. It could be better. Let's just do it. Oh, it's a business. Great. Let's make it bigger. Exactly. The outsider is one of my favorite types. And, you know, the outsider sort of starts with a Zen-like beginner's mind. They sort of expect barriers to entry. And they always can, you know, find a side door. They really see in chromatic sort of relief what the current limitations are. Mm -hmm. And they're great at experimenting. And, you know, the famous, you know, obvious famous outsiders are, say, Brian Chesky, Airbnb, who obviously knew nothing about hotels, uh, Travis, Kalnick, Uber. And we see lots of outsiders being successful. Um, you know, yeah, I startup. mean, the insiders are like afraid. The outsider, as is often said by entrepreneurs, right. didn't yeah. know it was going to be so hard. Yeah. They had a, right. a, a completely right. different point of view. In our book, we profile real people. So the real outsider in our book is a guy named Daniel Lewis, who was just a law student at Stanford, and he actually had zero knowledge of tech. But he got to Stanford and he started, you know, taking these law classes and he realized that technology for searching a legal case was text-based and was boring. Yeah, LexisNexis. Yeah, and it struck him like, why? And since, you know, he wasn't a lawyer, he was just starting to study law, he wasn't a tech guy, it was kind of a double outsider. And just for fun, he starts researching this. And, you know, amazingly, of course, he enters Stanford Business Plan competition and enters Launchpad, you know, the accelerator Stanford, while getting a legal degree, which is kind of hard to imagine. You know, he ends up doing astounding stuff. I don't want to give away the whole story, but, of course, there's a happy ending, and this is hugely successful. And no one in the industry, like you say, no one, none of the insiders were doing this and probably could have done it. Also, one of my... Perhaps my other favorite one is the accidental entrepreneur because it's in diametric opposition to the business plan, right? The old world was you do a business plan and there's nothing more unbusiness plan than being an accidental entrepreneur, which is, you know, good old Craig Newmark of Craigslist, you know, didn't have an original, you know, commercial bone in his body, right? And even I totally. say somebody like... Stuart Butterfield, uh, you know, Flickr and Slack, which, uh, by the way, as you probably know, just had a direct listing on the market this morning. Yeah, I mean, he's the poster child, like, at least twice now, right? Of uh, I was doing one thing and this other thing happened. Remember? Yeah, and there's something sort of joyous and pure about the accidental, because it's usually just because, you know, they have somebody else who's a business person or it's just so crazily successful that they just kind of have to turn it into a business. And there's something really, uh, I think, wonderful about that. And in, in, our, in our story, we have an Estonian physicist, who I'll just tell a tiny bit of the story, who 
is working at CERN. And if you know your physics, that's kind of like mm-hmm. top of the heat. And he's Estonian and he can't speak French. So he decides, I better learn French. And how does a physicist learn French? He decides at midnight to feed the supercomputers the text uh, files of 50,000 French movies. <laughs> <laughs> and and tell them the right order in which to learn all the language. It, well, to create sort of a machine learning method for how people really learn the language and what people really talk about. But literally, he's using these sort of unused cycles of the middle of the night of this phenomenally powerful machine. And of course, this leads him to a, a learning machine. Yet he's a physicist and doesn't know anything about, you know, really about tech or startups. And it's, it's another beautiful story. In a way, all the archetypes apply to him and, 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 and with great, rich, interesting entrepreneurial characters. I think yeah. the, depending on what they choose to emphasize, you sort of find each yeah. power yeah. center for these types. They yeah. are quite explanatory and, dis- and descriptive, aren't yeah. they, in, in sort of dividing the, the behaviors. But, yeah, but I tell you one, you know, we've had our own little um, sort of epiphany in that and we've realized that you can aspire to be these people. So, you know, so for instance, you might naturally be the outsider, but you can aspire to be other types that may be valuable for you in this journey. And we actually, we call the journey uh, the shift. So we think of every entrepreneur who, you know, aspires to this larger experience that they start with an awakening because nothing happens unless you first awaken. And then the second phase of after the awakening is the shift. And this is the first shift. And it was what you just referenced with, you know, as an academic and a smart person, you come up with great ideas, but if you don't do anything, it's just an awakening and you go back to sleep. So the shift is when you take the first tangible steps, then we have a concept we call the place. And we think of the place as your ecosystem, your people, your community. But what we believe is you're always creating new places. Uh, especially when you're engaged in new endeavors. And it's not like you have a static place and, and you have multiple places. And then if you're getting serious, you have a launch. And that's when, you know, technical terms, that's when you're actually, you know, really making your first prototypes. Uh, the, the venture starting to gain some early traction. You have the money and the money is everything from investment to headcount, to, you know, if it's a corporate entrepreneurship, it's true backing from the CEO. And then you have test. And then if you're lucky, you have scale. You, every story in our book, we see the characters in a chronological fashion. It's not purely chronological in real life, but this is one of the things you have to do when you write a book that we, you know, we see them start at this awakening and, and try to evolve toward, you know, test in scale. How fascinating. I think that the character-driven analysis of these stories that you observe and the arc that you just laid out is, is powerful. And actually, I mean, in my teaching on this, I found something really interesting as I was searching for a way to communicate and structure the job of storytelling that the entrepreneur has, you know, mm-hmm. of, along with the other dozen jobs. One of them is you got to tell your story. 
I think the literature on entrepreneurship doesn't help you that much on storytelling. You know, you sort of get pointed to a link of Jobs doing his thing, you know, launching the iPhone or something. And while those are quite inspiring, they're not instructive necessarily. Right. Because not everyone's going to do it his way. There are patterns and variations. And as I was sort of scratching the surface, and, and you may end up more familiar with this content than I have become, in the realm of literary theory, and it has some roots in psychology, are the handful of stories in the world. And so there's this famous uh, line, I guess it's uh, Borges, Jorge Luis Borges, sure. Argentine Great. writer. Great He's writer. like, there's only like four stories in the world. There's like, um, you know, like the quest, the overcoming, uh, love between two people and love between three people. Uh-huh. So that's his <laughs> little summary. But then there's also Joseph Campbell, whose book, The Hero's Journey, uh, sure. makes the argument that all the historical mythology and folklore of human civilization just boils down to, you know, this protagonist setting out on a journey and there's this whole cycle. And then if you get to Hollywood, actually, they have a name. There's a name Mm -hmm. for the patterns that organize all the stories in the world. And the name is genre in Hollywood. You know, you got your like, you got your genres. And if you come now back to innovation and entrepreneurship and you think, okay, well, what are the genres? There's -hmm. actually just a handful, you know, there's like the, the I invented something, you know, like a thunderbolt came. There's the right. overcoming or, you know, slaying the monster. There's the right. version of your accidental, which is the rags to riches, mm-hmm. which may be a bit of the outsider going on. or and the, Yeah, and there's a few others, you know. And those handful of patterns, you see them obtain across all those. And I think that in those patterns are your characters. Exactly. Yeah, and, and I, you've hit upon something very important is that we've probably seen more pitches than we wish to <laughs> to admit to, right, startup pitches, and they don't actually usually know, you know, who they are. Uh, They don't always identify the protagonist because, you know, Job was a master at having, you know, villains to overcome, whether it was, you know, IBM or or Microsoft. And that there's not a sense of this, you know, elemental, as you put it, you know, Joseph Campbell hero's journey. And people are people they like you know, people who are doing something meaningful. And I think it's a big missing element. I'm actually a big critic of the whole Hollywood pitch model that has so, um, you know, captivated, you know, startups. It's very shallow. It's very shallow. Yes. Yeah. And it's so important for so much, you know, capital and so much investment. And I'm actually working on some things, crazy little ideas to try to improve it a bit. But one of the ways to improve it is to have, you know, obviously a better story and to actually understand what your real value is. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, 
that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. Yeah, and to understand the pattern, uh, you know, what's the framework that you're walking into? It is shallow to give an elevator pitch, but there are practical considerations that get you there. And if the technology you're working on will overcome the monster, then say so. <laughs> and people will understand, yeah. you know, we're the next Google. Exactly. Or are you creating a yeah. new category? Or is it a this or yeah. a that? I mean, it's not, yeah. it's not that hard. It's not that intellectually tactical. I want to pursue another theme with you, if you don't mind, sure. um, yeah. just for a little bit, because there is this generation of entrepreneurship thinking that mm -hmm. I think has just come to a close. So probably between mm -hmm. 1990 and let's say 2010, three really big ideas about innovation and entrepreneurship made their way onto the field and became mm -hmm. dogma. They are mm -hmm. often contrasted with each other. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm interested in your view on this. So one of them, of course, is human-centered design. I mean, is that how you would describe mm -hmm. IDEO or, I don't know, yes. whatever that yes. is? So sure. human-centered design. Prototyping, making, paper prototypes, and anthropology, and being the customer, and putting on dark glasses to see what it's like to be old, and this whole package of stuff, right? This is where innovation comes from, these kind of behaviors. That's one. The second one is, um, is Lean, the Lean startup and Steve Blank. Sure just try to sell it and change it and iterate it and whatever. Um, sure. And there are some similarities. I mean, this one starts with a very commercial requirement sure. and then it keeps working and iterating. You try to sell a prototype basically, I think, in, right. in Lean. And perhaps with human-centered, you are not so arrogant as to try to sell the prototype, but you try to get someone right. to use the prototype. And then the third family is Agile. I, I don't mm -hmm. think Agile has at its heart a product idea. The heart of it is in the technology community and software engineering, but of course it has a powerful and vivid product mm -hmm. and innovation application. And so, well, what's Agile? It's like, take something big, make it lots of small things, always ship, put it in front of people, let their reactions guide what you do next. You don't have a monolithic theory, don't be NASA with the phase gates and the 10-year plans. So Agile, mm -hmm. lean, and human-centered. My way of thinking about this. Yeah, that's great. I'm interested. My way of thinking about this is that all three of these build on the couple of decades that passed by 1990. The mm -hmm. Silicon Valley tribe was out there for the first time. People were working in these sort of blank canvas product areas, you know, software where there were no constraints that were visible. You had to like invent it all. And from 1990 onward, I think folks that had been in that first couple of generations of truly radical companies that had built huge titanic businesses, you know, the Apples and Intels and whatnot, started thinking about what did we do? Why did it work? How did we do it? And they started, mm -hmm. I think, writing the, the, the canonical texts. And I think these are the three key families, mm -hmm. at least for product. But I think they actually are far more related than they give each other credit for or that observers might summarize. And so here's what I think the way they're related. Mm -hmm. I think they are collectively a search for truth. Mm -hmm. They're a search for a thing that people want to use and pay for. It's like a search mm -hmm. process. I mean, it's almost scientific, you know, I mean, and, and what they say is, I don't know the answer. They start by saying, I don't know the answer. In the old days, uh, right. people said they knew the answer. Well, right. there are these three approaches for not knowing the answer, but getting yourself to the answer. And I right. wonder how you feel about the similarities and, how, and, and ways of contrasting these, these, the three in this family. I'm glad you asked. 
Well, I'd like to state one thing first, is that I believe that Lean Startup, especially, and also Agile, have become sort of the dominant models, at least in San Francisco, let's say, uh, for startups. I don't know if you'd agree, but I think they're very popular. I have a sense that, you know, what you and I might call really full bore human-centered design is not as common and is not as popularly practiced today by startups. Here. I think if a startup raises some money and goes to the board meeting and says that we're going to spend the next six months rethinking everything, that would not be a popular, right. well-received right. strategy. Right. You know, we both know human-centered design probably takes more time and money and energy and enthusiasm and the whole concept of lean startup, you know, its merit is to, to get somewhere where you can get traction faster and, you know, you know, good enough uh, for right now. And it, smarter people than myself have, have said it's very effective for certain kinds of technology and certain kinds of businesses, but not all. It's not like a one-size-fit-all model. And as you correctly pointed out, you know, Agile, you know, the, the, one of the most famous sort of Agile success stories is probably Amazon, you know, who years ago claimed to be doing, you know, a thousand experiments a day without everyone <laughs> knowing they were happening, right? Did you say a thousand? Um, a thousand. I think, you know, they claim to be, you know, and these are minor experiments, but, you know, changing minor things incredible numbers of time in one day to see, you know, a different return from customers and click throughs and so forth. And I think that's, you know, maybe one example. I do think they all have something in common, which is, I mean, the most concrete thing is essentially, you know, fast prototyping that you're going to be starting without an answer, um, you know, letting, you know, discovery and data you know, guide you toward possible answers, and there can be multiple answers. But I think there's, you know, the human-centered design, it has that word. It's human-centered, and I think Lean Startup and Agile, that's more of a option, you know, in those approaches. And so I'm actually in my world, and I wanted to talk about this in a minute, so I'm in a place right now where I feel I'm in a, in a physical place that's part of a network that's a great place for me because there's an awareness that really in San Francisco and I'd say the other, you know, 10 key places in the world, startups and entrepreneurs is about who you know and who you meet and how you meet and how you collaborate and how you create and the human potential part of it to me is, is massive. So I'm in this place right now called School Lab, which is, I'm actually in San Francisco, but the headquarters is in Paris. It's quite unusual. It started as essentially student consulting, you know, great, smart Parisian, you know, students in a variety of schools doing amazing consulting for corporations. And then they had startups, and then they had corporations. So it starts with this very young, vital students, startups, but then also working with corporates and larger companies. And Do you bring these I'm guys helping. like human-centered design? Is that part of the conversation? Is it relevant well, for startups they, they, and really they, young companies? The amazing thing is the, the founder of School Lab Paris was inspired by David Kelly at Stanford. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, it's a small world. 
design thinking, but he was very creative in, you know, in, in building this in Paris where it was quite unusual and actually in doing something that I find is rare here. You know, we now have a connection here with UC Berkeley, you know, my university, and, and we have um, students from all over the world come to Berkeley and then come through here. And we're hub for all these elite um, educational programs, not just undergrad, but, you know, some of these amazing, we've got a group from Polytechnique, which is a famous school in Paris. These are all executives, you know, and they're executives in their 40s and 50s doing an amazingly in-depth, you know, global program you know, coming through. And so we're helping to build a culture here in what I feel, you know, having been sort of ground zero in this latest startup craze here in San Francisco is that if you play nice and if you're creative and you have what we call like a, you know, a yes and mentality, you can have this sort of, you know, agile exponential increase in what's possible for you. Mm. But it's very much a human skill. It's, I can't say you can learn this from a book, right? And but we're trying to build the culture to make it more natural and intuitive, which I think is very different from like a plug and play and a we work, which don't really have, in my view, the same sort of authentic foundation. How oh, fascinating. Yeah, the yeah. teaching mission seems quite central to the work that you're doing. Yeah. And I'd add another important thing is that I'm a bit weird. Like I say, I have this sort of European international background. I'm so happy to be in a place where every day, you know, I was just talking Spanish with a Colombian. Next week, I'm, I'm going to be speaking Portuguese with someone from Portugal. To me, this is what's missing in too many places here in San Francisco is, you know, we're too American. We're too Californian. Hmm. And there <laughs> yeah. are... Well, in, on that topic, New York is nice. I mean, you get a lot of... Yes. <laughs> yeah. You definitely get much more. But we... You know, they're obviously uh, Europe and other places care more about the community, perhaps more about the environment. Uh, there's a recognition there can be great businesses built that are great for society and, you know, fighting climate change. And I feel like I have personally more potential being in a place where I'm constantly meeting people who live, you know, 10,000 kilometers away from me. And that to me, is a, a different level of human-centered design. Totally. It's recognized totally. That, that it's a plan. Yeah, sure. you know? <laughs> we can't finish talking without explaining why on earth you wrote a whole entire book about me. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. But I mean, I think you said my name one time in this book called I Hate People. And That's right. I, I think at the time when I gave you the interview, I thought that it sounded good. But now in retrospect, I'm thinking, why am I profiled in a book about hating people? I, I like people. Well, I like people too. And the funny thing, this book got a fantastic review in the Wall Street Journal. And actually, as we both know, it was actually in, in a funny way about liking people. It was a model for how you could be more productive by not allowing some sort of unfortunate human behaviors in your workday and your career and your startup to weigh you down and to actually <laughs> be able to connect to uh, the real people. And I, I, we had archetypes there too. We had people who were stop signs and, uh, you know, 
heads Zoom, down Zoom. work requires some time and space. Actually, you know, at Notel we've launched a product, which is a, a space. It's called Haven, and we have our first one open in New York now, which is a, a workspace that anyone who's got a Notel, like any company that's at a Notel, so there's hundreds of them, okay, and they're like real companies, but anyone who works at one of these places can leave the office, go to Haven, and Haven is a place where there's no talking. It's a <laughs> library. <laughs> no phone calls, no conversation. It is just quiet. So you can work or meditate or read or whatever. I That's must great. thank you, Jonathan, for making time to uh, speak with me and be on in the know and share the amazing work that you're up to. I'm excited for the new book. When does it drop? We're still working on the draft. It's probably going to be out in the spring of next year. We're hoping to be finished in a couple of months, but we're already doing workshops on it. Um, I've already done like three workshops, and I invite you to come here to our little Parisian uh, school lab here in San Francisco and show you more. I love it. Thank you so much. Thanks all. It was great. We loved it.